If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 28 as we look at a familiar passage of Scripture, Matthew 28. It's always good to be at the GO Conference. Good to see some familiar faces. We're uh, delighted you're here on our campus uh, for this event. I want to read this text and then uh, pray, and we're going to jump in uh, to this incredible passage. Let's read verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And this is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. So as Jake mentioned, uh, I'm a pastor of a church here in Raleigh. We're a young church, and we've got a lot of young folks church is about five and a half years old, and we uh, have a lot of young families, and we have a lot of kids. In fact, our executive pastor told me yesterday that we are averaging a child either born or adopted every 10 days since the existence of our church. So we are like the, or the women are like the Hebrew women in uh, the book of Exodus, you know, it's like these women are vigorous. Um, I'm thinking that could be the the name of our church. And so what happens is we've got all these kids and we also have a lot of folks who come through our church and they're going to the nations to give their lives. And so you have these heroic missionaries and you have all these these kids everywhere. And sometimes you can find yourself in the middle of a conversation with both. And it's like two extreme worlds. Uh, Just a few months ago, I was having a conversation with one of our, our young single girls who is going to the Middle East to give her life among the nations. And she was talking about how excited she is, how thrilled she is to give her life to Muslim women in the Middle East for the sake of the gospel. And so I'm having this conversation with her, just admiring her. And this whole time, this little guy's grabbing my arm. And so I'm trying to ignore him as I'm trying to encourage her. And finally, I turn to him and he says, hey, I can do the moonwalk. I can do the moonwalk. And I'm like, okay, let me see your moonwalk. And so he proceeds to, you know, give a little moonwalk. And I was looking at this, this scenario, thinking to myself, well, this is the situation we find ourselves in. How do we get the moonwalkers to the mission field? How, how do we take these kids and make them that? Well, we've got a lot of discipling to do. A lot of discipling to do. And all of us do, because our job, both locally and globally, is to make disciples. And we see this here in this famous text of Matthew 28. Now, you may not be a Christian in this room, and I'm assuming we have many in this room who who are not. We're really glad you're here. You may not have heard of this passage, or maybe you're a new Christian and you haven't heard this passage before. I don't want to assume everybody's familiar with this. If you are, it's my privilege to introduce you to what we typically call the Great Commission. Matthew 28 is one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible. It begins with the greatest news, the tomb is empty. And it ends with the greatest mission, make disciples of all nations. And what Matthew does in Matthew 28 is he he provides a beautiful summary and he connects, if you like, Christmas with, with Easter. 
He, he says some of the same things in 28 that he says in the opening chapters of Matthew. For example, at Jesus' birth, he is called Emmanuel, God with us. And here in Matthew 28, he tells his disciples after his resurrection, I am with you always. At his birth, Jesus is called the King of the Jews. And here we see that he is the king who has all authority over heaven and earth. At his birth, wise men from Gentile lands come to worship him. And here his disciples worship him and he sends them to the Gentile lands to make disciples. So it's a wonderful conclusion. And we really can't hear the Great Commission enough. Sinclair Ferguson, a, a wonderful pastor today, tells a story about being a theology student in Scotland in the 1960s. And he had several uh, very uh, wonderful professors, and one of them uh, was, was really prestigious and uh, had many strange mannerisms and idiosyncrasies. In fact, he said he had a monocle in one eye, and there are all kinds of stories, you know, with his eye uh, that, that he told. And he, but he was a very acclaimed professor, by, he was honored by the queen, he had military distinctions, and the theology department had regular chapel services. And whenever it was this, time, this, this guy's time to preach, he would always preach the exact same text. And it became somewhat of a joke. You know, some people wouldn't show up, People wouldn't pay attention. And he would stand up each time and announce his text. And this was it. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And Ferguson said, you know, it dawned on me years later that what my professor was trying to communicate. It wasn't that he didn't have anything else to say. It's because we needed to hear this over and over and over again. These words are actually some of the most important words in all of Scripture. The last command of the authoritative Christ is the first priority of the authentic Christian. This last command is our first priority. So we have to always keep it in front of us. It's impacted millions. Dr. Aiken talked about Jim Elliott last night. I could introduce you to another bi biographical legend. It's William Carey. Dr. Aiken also has a wonderful biography on him. He's called the father of modern missions. He died in 1834 as a missionary to India. He was a poor kid. He only had a grammar school education, but he would go on to translate the Bible into dozens of languages and dialects and establish schools and mission stations all around India. One biographer, Timothy George, says of him, here's his resume, education, minimal, degrees, none, savings, depleted, political influence, nil. References, a band of country preachers a half a world away. What are his resources? A weapon, love. A desire to bring the light of God into the darkness. A strategy to proclaim by life, lips, and letters the unsearchable riches of Christ. This text, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, was William Carey's last sermon text he preached at Harvey Lane Church before he would depart for India and never return again. Even though people tried to stop him, on one occasion, a respected pastor said, young man, sit down. When God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. Well, Carey didn't listen. William Carey got the Great Commission, or we could say the Great Commission got William Carey. And the question is, has it gotten you? Now, what I like to do is divide this text into three parts. First of all, the Christ we worship. Secondly, the command we obey. Thirdly, the comfort we enjoy. First of all, the Christ we worship. 
Most biographies uh, end with a person's death, but not Jesus's. The Romans executed Jesus, the leader of this lightly organized movement. They crucified him publicly and shamefully. His followers cowered in fear during this time. But afterwards, instead of disintegrating, this movement exploded. What happened? How did it explode? How did it go from this group of disciples to Wake Forest, North Carolina this morning? Well, what happened was on the third day, Jesus stepped out into the sunlight as the victorious and vindicated Son of God. His followers were transformed by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. This little movement exploded, my friends, because today the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. And what happens is, in verse 16, these disciples see him, and it says they worshiped him. This is where the Christian mission begins. It begins with the meeting with the risen Christ. The resurrection is not merely a truth we die on. It's the truth we build our lives on. And if you know him, if you treasure him, if you worship him, you will be his witness because it will be an overflow. You see, your behavior changes when your heart changes. We often think that we can fix behavior just by behavior modification, but ultimately, you will not change your life until your heart is changed. To say it another way, the order of your loves determines the direction of your lives. What you love determines what's, what's going to happen. What are you going to do? In other words, if, if you love Jesus deeply, your lifestyle will change dramatically. The Great Commission begins with loves. Here, these disciples are in awe. You know how this works. I know how this works. I have five kids, ages 12 to 17. I know I don't look that old. I appreciate it. Um, and you can tell your kid, you know, certain thing, like James, my oldest, for example. James, you should really take a shower, man. Like, it's a great invention. We have hot water, you know. Um, and try some deodorant, you know. It'll, it'll smell lovely on you. Maybe some cologne. James, why don't you wash it? Why, why don't you wash my car, James? Would you do that? Hey, he's negative on all of this. Or why don't you get a job, James? But as soon as James gets a girlfriend, what happens? James takes a shower. He takes a couple showers, you know. James got my deodorant on. He's got my old spice on. He's washing my car, wanting to take it out, gets himself a job. You see, behavior changes when affections change. And you can talk to your blue in the face to people about getting on with the Great Commission, but if they don't have affections for Jesus, it won't happen. This all begins when the disciples are captivated by the Son of God. They look at him, and it says they worship him. Now, we don't know exactly who it was that attended this particular meeting in verses 16 and 17. We, we see that the 11 disciples were there to be sure, but it seems that there were probably many, many others who were present as well. We don't know exactly when, when this was. It would have had to have been after the meeting in Luke 24 and after Jesus' appearances in John 20 and 21 and before his ascension, which was 40 days after his resurrection, so that probably puts Matthew 28 somewhere uh, around three or four weeks after the resurrection. The 11 were there on this occasion, 
And we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says at one time Jesus had appeared to over 500 people. Now, the the most likely place for that meeting would have been in Galilee. Most of Jesus' followers were in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. You remember in Acts 1, there are only 120 who are in Jerusalem. So I think the the reason we have this little note that some doubted is, is most likely because we're talking about another group. The disciples had already had appearances of Jesus, and if you remember from Luke 24, they had a hard time discerning who he was. And it would make sense that those who had not seen the risen Jesus yet were trying to make sense of all of this. And you would too if you saw a guy, you know, who was dead. And and so it says some doubt. So that shouldn't trouble us. One would assume that these these doubters, and by the way, this is not a doubt that's negative and closed-minded, but one who's who's open and trying to make sense of things. If you're a doubter, I hope you're that kind of doubter. Show me the evidence, like Thomas, who believed after he uh, was convinced that Jesus has rose from the dead. At any rate, on some hillside to ordinary, get this now, ordinary people, the risen Jesus appears. And this should encourage us. This is 1 Corinthians 1.26, that not many were wise or noble that were chosen, but he chose the, the ordinary, the common, that we may make his glory known. Now, if you're in this room this morning and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm, the wrong, I'm from the wrong kind of family to be used by the king. My roots are too humble. You should think again. Let this encourage you. Like every time someone says or hints at something like that, I want to say to them, have you read Genesis before? You think your family's messed up? Like, <laughs> and think about these guys. No education. Jesus is not going to Harvard selecting his disciples though that's fine if guys from harvard want to be his disciples these are ordinary guys it's it's like jesus went to the bowling alley and said hey come be my disciples or the high school kids who are smoking e-cigs across the street you know from the school like hey you come be my disciple i don't think i'm your guy oh yeah you are you're it you're exactly what i'm looking for and then you see it in acts chapter 2 Uh, Peter is speaking, and they're hearing him in their own language, people from other languages. He's he's speaking languages, they're hearing languages, and they're like, is this not the Galilean? If you don't know the Galilean, that's not a compliment. They were the rednecks. There was a particular accent with Galileans. It would be like Uncle Cy speaking perfect French in front of the Senate, and and you're like, what just happened? How did this happen? He hasn't had French class. He can't speak English, you know. And that's, that's because Jesus, he uses the ordinary. You see, Jesus can use the GED or the PhD. He uses them all. My dad has a GED. And I have a PhD. And my dad says, you say, that's how you pronounce it, right? He's not impressed by it. The question is not, do you have the education? Are you gifted enough? The question is, are you available? The question is, is your heart captivated by this king? And, and if it is, then you're a good candidate for a disciple maker. And so this is where it all begins. It begins with worship. Missionary enthusiasm flows from an enthusiasm for the king. And you know how this works. We commend what we cherish. We talk about what we love. You do this with Netflix, you know. You're on a new show, and you're just chatting it up, man. 
You, you've got a, a new relationship. You, there, you've been to a game, or if you cook, I love to cook. I make probably the best guac in North Carolina. And, and when, I'm, when I'm chopping it up, you know, and I get it just the way I want it, I'm like, oh, you've got to taste this. You've got to taste this. Well, that's evangelism. You're telling the world, taste and see that the Lord is good. I don't know what you're tasting, pal, but you ain't tasted this. You commend what you cherish. And because these disciples were so enamored with Jesus, it says in Acts 4, they say, we can't help but to speak the things we've seen and heard. We can't stop. We won't stop. Because Jesus is too legit to quit. We're just going to keep commending him. That's how these cowards move to bold disciples. You remember Peter? They're like, do you know Jesus? He's like, nah, never heard of him. Acts 2, 3, 4. Peter, stop talking about the name of Jesus. He won't stop. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He saw him. His heart was overwhelmed by him. The ordinary people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, captivated by the Son of God, can accomplish the mission of God. Question is, are you captivated by it? Number two, the command we obey. We see Jesus here giving us this central command to make disciples. And because he is the king, we submit to him. We don't negotiate with the king. He's the king. We can't excuse ourselves from this commandment. Hudson Taylor put it this way, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. So this is not like a Netflix watch list. I might watch it. It's the maybe. You can't put the Great Commission in a watch list as a possibility if you're a Christian. No, it's our priority. We must give our lives to this. Not in a half-hearted way, but in a whole-hearted way. And by the way, half-hearted Christianity is miserable Christianity. You will not find joy in sitting on the fence. Those who are getting the most out of their faith, the most joy, are putting the most into it. We give our lives to this commission. Why? Well, because Jesus is risen, and he has all authority. It says here that he, he is claiming something that only God can claim because he is. His statement of his authority anticipates his ascension and his enthronement. The universe is in subjection to Jesus. As the famous theologian Kuiper put it, there is not a square inch in the whole universe where Jesus doesn't say, mine. He has all authority. That means he has the right and power to, to do whatever he wants. And he has the right and power to commission us. And you see, this statement, all authority, this undergirds our confidence in the Great Commission. You realize that the Great Commission would be totally outrageous if this all authority and I am with you wasn't here. If it's about us, forget it. But because Jesus says, I have all authority and I am with you, we can do the middle part, you see? So in other words, Jesus is saying, you guys, you guys are not idiots for doing this. I have all authority and I, commend, I, I commission you to do it. So this, this universal authority leads to this universal mission. And when you read the book of Acts, you see how his sovereignty is played out in the mission. Opening up hearts, bringing people to salvation, answering prayer, freeing people from prison. We don't do this work on our own. 
The sovereign Lord has all authority, so we go in confidence. If Jesus weren't sovereign, missions would be a futile enterprise. But we just sang about it a while ago. He is sovereign over us, and we go in that confidence. And we go to make disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. This, in Greek, is the one imperative of the Great Commission. Make disciples. Orbiting around it are three participles that function like an imperative. Going, baptizing, and teaching. In other words, we are to make disciples by going, by baptizing, by teaching. There is a reaching component to the commission, go and baptize, and a teaching component to the Great Commission. So make disciples by going. That's what the church is. The church is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. We are on mission. There is nothing more self-centered than a cruise. I just went on one, and it was awesome. And I'm, I'm in favor of rest, okay? You, sometimes you may need something like that. I certainly did. It was Operation Remove Circles from Tony's Eyes trip. Uh, I needed to rest. But, but that's not the normal life. It's, we're not on a cruise ship. We're on a battleship. We are to go. And Andrew put it really well. Sometimes this is just across the street. Sometimes this is with dinner with an unbelieving friend. Sometimes this is coaching Little League Baseball. Sometimes this is at your work. We are to, to be a people who live with gospel intentionality. And you realize, my friends, that, that lives are changed in some very non-sensational ways. If you will live with intentionality, if you'll be deliberate. Conversations at a dinner table, on a study break, at your locker with a friend. I love the testimony of Matt Chandler who was playing high school football and this kid that nobody knows just came up to him and said, you know, Matt, I'm going to share the gospel with you at some point this semester. Just let me know when you're ready. And he invited Chandler to youth group, and Chandler tried to play it off like he didn't like it, you know, and he kept, but he kept saying every week, hey, man, can I get another ride? My friend Kevin Peck, who's at the Austin Stone Church, where my friend Matt Carter is, is pastoring, you'll hear from Matt later, is brilliant. Had an Ivy League, you know, Ivy League intelligence scholarships to Ivy League schools. But he said, I was reading the Bible in high school and I could not understand it. And he said, there was this, this really country dude in Texas who said, let's read through the Gospel of Matthew every morning at McDonald's. He and Peck met at McDonald's. And Peck says, man, I, it's hard to explain, but by the time I got to Matthew 28, I became a Christian. These people just going. Ordinary people, empowered by the Spirit of God, Captivated by the Son of God, accomplishing the mission of God. For some of you, it will mean going internationally. You should notice here, when Jesus says nations, he's not talking about political states. He's talking about ethnic and language groupings of people, ethne. It's the kind of thing we read about in Revelation 5, 9, every tribe and language and people and nation. Hundreds of them have never heard the gospel, thousands of them. Today we often debate in the church all the details of the second coming when in reality, as has been said before, most of the world hasn't heard of the first. To be a Christ follower means to be passionate about the things Jesus is passionate about. And he's passionate about the nations. For some of you, this will involve great suffering. For some of you, if you stay in the States, at least now, you'll at least be ridiculed or mocked, labeled, 
as arrogant, intolerant, or even dangerous. So whether you stay here and make disciples or go abroad, we're all called to be intentional. We're called to go. Now, in William Carey's day, many argued that we didn't need missionaries. They even had, listen to this now, an anti-missions hymn. Here's how it went. Go into all the world, the Lord of old did say, but where he has planted thee, there thou should stay. They sang that. Let's all sing together how we should not go to the nations. One prominent pastor even closed a sermon saying, quote, the so-called missionaries are not needed today. I hear the same kind of sentiment uttered about refugees today. The nations are coming to us, and we're saying, you guys stay over there. We're going to stay here. Nah, we have to see the world through gospel eyes, not political eyes. Through the lens of the Bible, not the lens of Fox News. Build your life on the scriptures. Fortunately, Carrie and Fuller and many others saw things and saw the world and saw this commission radically different, and I pray you will too. Make disciples by going, make disciples here by baptizing. This is the reaching part of the Great Commission. We are to baptize people. Baptism is this beautiful picture of what's happened to us in the gospel. We were dead, and now we're alive. We were dirty, now we're clean. It's a work of grace. Now notice he says, baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, plural. We have the Trinity right here in the Great Commission. The triune God. Now, why does he throw the Trinity in? <laughs> well, because the entire Godhead is at work in our salvation. The Father administrated it, the Son accomplished it, and the Spirit applies it. We are identifying people in baptism with Jesus and the body of Christ, and it's a reminder of God's amazing grace to us. We are new creations this morning. So he says, go and do that a lot. <laughs> Share the gospel and to the end that you would identify people with Jesus. Now, this implies that people are sinners, and this is why people don't like this message. In pop culture today, you will not hear this. In fact, if you just think about songs sung by Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, or Pink, you will not hear anything about your own sinfulness and rebellion and need to repent. We have a generation that is preaching through music and movies and so on what I call the religion of, of relentless affirmation. No one has the right to tell you you're wrong. So you think about the song Firework, or Born This Way, or Raise Your Glass. The reoccurring theme is, you're awesome, just the way you are. These are the priestesses of this new religion of self-affirmation. And of course, there is a, a grain of truth in what they're saying. You are made in the image of God, and you are valuable, and you are different, and you are distinct. But there has been a fall, and you are sinful, and you need to be forgiven. They're not saying that, because that doesn't play well on the radio. <laughs> not you're a firework, but you're totally depraved, and you need to repent. That, that's not going to sell a lot of records, you know? But it's like, you're awesome. You're, who doesn't want to be told that? Well, baptism is saying you are awful. You are dead in your sin. 
But by grace, you have been made alive. You have been cleansed. You have been restored. And we experience God's grace every day as a believer, don't we? Luther said we experience grace in three ways. Once for all, again and again, and more and more. Once for all in conversion, again and again in the Christian life, and more and more. My friends, don't just be stirred by his grace, but be changed by his grace. Be enamored by his grace. We make disciples by going, by baptizing, and thirdly, by teaching. The church is a family of learners and a family of teachers. We are to always be learning and we are to always be teaching. I came downstairs just a few days ago and my wife was in the recliner, had her Bible open, had her journal out. She's listening to something and she's, she's like in tears. I'm like, what's wrong? She's like, Piper is killing it. <laughs> That's sexy. That's a, and nothing more sexy than your wife listening to Piper in the morning, you know what I'm saying? My wife, that's just, that's the spirit, man. Every day we're in the scriptures, listen to sermons, whatever it is. We are to always be learning. And you know what she's doing? She's learning so she can teach, so she can parent. And we're to make disciples, not just give information. Notice it says, teach them to observe or obey or keep or do. That's what observe means there in the ESV. Teach them to be doers of the word. The devil knows the Bible. We're not trying to bring people up to the devil's level. We want them to be doers of the word, obeyers of Scripture. All that I've commanded you, Jesus says, that is, all the verses, not just what we like, even Leviticus, Obadiah, you know, teach all of it, teach the whole council. The book of Acts is filled with so many examples of how the people are just teaching, 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 teaching all the time. They, they said, will you stop teaching? Like the world would be okay with some of the social work we do, but they don't want us teaching. They don't want us preaching. Now, you will find ways to do this. There are multiple ways in the New Testament that you are instructed, we are instructed to teach. Here in Matthew 28, we are to teach the nations. <clears throat> in Ephesians 6, parents are to teach children. In Titus 2, we have this beautiful picture of the men discipling the men, the women discipling the women. Pastors in 2 Timothy 2, 2 are to train other pastors. And if I could just say a brief word about that one. If, if you ever read Operation World, it's a book which gives you a nation to pray for, a people group to pray for every day. One of the common prayer requests that you see is the need for indigenous teachers, the need for training. Papua New Guinea quote, leadership training is a top priority. Moldova, quote, leadership training and discipleship are still the greatest needs. Mongolia, developing Mongolian church leaders is a strategic need and the key to strengthening the church. Mozambique, training church leadership is an urgent priority, probably the most strategic spiritual issue in the country. There are thousands of people in churches who need training. And I just want to say, some of you maybe in this room will give your whole life to that task. And that would be beautiful. What a beautiful offering that would be. Pastors are to disciple from the pulpit. We read a text earlier from Colossians 3.16, the same in Romans 15.14, that we are to teach one another, encourage one another. We can do this one-on-one, -on -one, just as Barnabas took Paul. Paul would take Timothy. Some of you can do this with the children in your church. 
As a parent, I'm, I see the fruit of friends in our church just saying, hey, can I take your kid out for lunch and teach Philippians to them? Yes, please. Keep him for a week if you like, you know. <laughs> That's a great way to make disciples, a great way to learn how to teach. In other words, all believers share this responsibility in some way. And I would just encourage you, as you listen to sermons, as you listen to lectures and teaching, don't just be a receiver. Listen as a reproducer. Bill Hull, who is a professor, teacher, discipleship guru, was teaching on one occasion out on the West Coast, and he told his class, they came in and he said, now, I'm not going to give you an exam over this material. What I want you to do is go reteach everything I teach you. And then bring the people that you taught into the class, and I will test them, and whatever grade they get, that's your grade. That's a good idea, isn't it? Teaching, teaching, teaching. We need to saturate the nations with sound doctrine. I was just in the DR a few, a few days ago. I was in Ukraine in December. Everywhere I go, I see what we need is to saturate the globe with sound doctrine. Fill cities with teaching. People are theologically famished. Without sound teaching, believers remain spiritual children. And children are vulnerable. And so in whatever way you can, be a learner, be a teacher. I like to compare teaching to, to golf. I have no other use for golf, so I'll use it in an analogy. But golf, there are three kinds of clubs, right? You have the woods, and you have the, the irons, and you have the putter. And I liken the pulpit to... The driver, it's big, it covers a lot of ground. That's one way you can disciple people. I liken more of the small group or the classes as the irons. It's a little bit more finesse. There's, it's, it's not monologue, it's more dialogue in the classes. And then you've got the putter, and I liken mentoring to that, the, kind of the one-on-one, -on -one, or one and two and three. And what I want to say to people is we need to use all the clubs we need to disciple from the pulpit. We need to disciple in the classes, in the groups. And we need to disciple one-on-one. -on -one. All of it is a, is a means by which we do this. We make disciples. So if you want to be a preacher one day, that's great. But don't minimize the need to putt and don't neglect the need to teach. And if you're more of the, the iron person, don't say, I'm not going to take the driver. Oh, we don't need a driver. We don't need a guy who teaches the Bible. Yeah, you do. Like, we need the whole, we need the whole bag. In whatever way the Lord gives you, make sure you're about this. This is not, the Great Commission is not reserved for a few dedicated people in the church. A missions department. That's like the craziest thing, man. The church is a missions department. And this is what we do. All of us. This Great Commission is given for all of us. That's the commandment. Now, thirdly, finally, quickly, the comfort we enjoy. Notice, <clears throat> verse 20 ends with this incredible promise. He says, go to the nations, baptize, teach, make disciples, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus promises us his personal presence, I am with you, and his perpetual presence, always. That's good news. Earlier in Matthew's account, in chapter 18, verse 20, 
As Jesus is talking about church discipline, when the church gathers, he says, where two or three are gathered, I am with you. So as the church assembles, as the church gathers, he's present. And here, as the church scatters, he's present. He's with us always. He's not only sovereign over us, he's present in us. Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, though the mountains be thrown into the heart of the sea. There is a stream whose river makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. He will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord. How he's brought desolations on the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God's purpose is for the nations to exalt him. And his promise is, I am with you as you work through this promise. You don't go on your own. He goes with us. It's like bring your kid to work day and we're the kid. We just get to join him on this mission. When David Livingston one time looked at all the work that Charles Spurgeon was doing, he said, how do you do two men's work in a single day? And Spurgeon said, you have forgotten there are two of us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. We don't go on our own. This is the comfort that you and I enjoy, that Jesus is with us. He's with us always, even to the end of the age. Mm. The the sweep of this great commission is is so amazing, isn't it? Just notice the four alls as we glance back over it here. The greatest authority, all authority. The greatest mission field, all nations. The greatest curriculum, all all that I have commanded you. The greatest assurance, I am with you for all our days. This is a mission worth giving your life to. This is a mission worth dying for. And before you think, as I finish, that you're too unfit for this assignment or not qualified for this mission, just stop and consider who wrote this commission? Matthew under the inspiration of the scripture, of the spirit, but Matthew, the tax collector, this, this guy who was hated, despised, this crooked tax collector, like a mafia member today, Jesus transformed him. He said in Matthew 9, 9, Matthew, come follow me. And he did. And Jesus can transform you. People saw Jesus hanging out with Matthew, and they were like, what are you doing hanging with him? And he says, I haven't come to call the self-righteous, but sinners, people like us. Jesus makes sinners his disciples who go make more disciples. And every believer can mature as Matthew matured. Every believer can make a disciple. I mean, Matthew did pretty well, didn't he? From tax booth to he wrote a book of the Bible. I'm not suggesting you should write a book of the Bible. Please don't. But you can communicate his word to other people. 
Jesus made Matthew a disciple maker, and he can make you one too. The words and presence of Jesus changed him. And praise God, he has changed us. So let's give our lives to this task. And when we see Jesus, we will not regret having done so. To hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. May God grant us grace to be faithful to this mission. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, the timelessness of it, and the timeliness of it. We pray that you would grant us grace, wisdom, to not waste our lives on things that don't matter. Help us to give our lives to this great commission. I pray for these students in the room, whether they go into a, a life of medicine or law or education or whatever their vocation might be, that they would be deliberate about fulfilling the Great Commission. Pray for those in this room that you may be calling to the nations, literally, to go, to relocate. We pray you grant them much grace, much wisdom. Father, we pray you would use us even this week, that you would give us conversations, though they may seem very common. May we see them as opportunities. Help us to live this life that we have with, with gospel eyes, Great Commission eyes. Help us to see the opportunities in front of us. And help us to be confident that you're with us as we open our mouth to communicate the words of life. We pray that we would have stories this year of baptizing many people. People being transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We long for that. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen.